0: From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. No matter what social media tells you, there's no such thing as the perfect
1: parent. All parents for millennia have had some shame that they're not doing it correctly or they might harm their child in some way. But it's exponentially grown in terms of what today's parents are experiencing.
0: Today, being a good enough parent, one who loses their cool from
1: time to time. Strong attachment comes out of having discord and then repairing discord.
0: Plus, cell phone privileges based on brain development. A conversation with Denver author Craig Nippenberg, whose new book is Shame-Free Parenting. Also, printing your next home. Then a 15,000th species boards the photo arc. And we have some pointers for your poinsettias.
1: Support for Colorado Public Radio comes in all shapes and sizes. You might give monthly as an Evergreen member or contribute during fund drives. Maybe you donated your car or gave a gift of stock. For all the ways you support CPR, thank you so much. Your generosity is deeply appreciated. Thank you for bringing trustworthy news and timeless music to listeners across Colorado. Explore all the ways to give at CPR.org. Click on Support CPR.
0: This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. If the perfect mom or dad keeps showing up in your social media feed, making you feel like less than a perfect parent, our first guest has some thoughts. Craig Nippenberg is a child and family therapist in Denver. His new book is Shame-Free Parenting, Building Resiliency in Times of Hardship, Guns, and Social Media. And Craig, thanks for being with us.
1: Thank you for having me on, Ryan. It's always
0: a joy. I guess as someone who carries around a fair amount of shame, that word stood out to me in the title of your book. Why do you think there's so much shame associated with parenting?
1: Well, parenting has always had that. I think all parents for millennia have had some bit of guilt or shame that they're not doing it correctly or they might harm their child in some way. But it's exponentially grown in terms of what today's parents are experiencing. So Pew Research Center had a study about today's parents are spending more money on their kids and more time than they ever have, but they feel pressured to do more. Hmm. And then you throw in the social media perfect parents, which, by the way, perfect parent is an oxymoron. that doesn't exist. (laughs) it's not possible, nor would you want to be. But that puts even more stress and sort of the whole judgment against other parents, or they're not doing it the right way, or it's just nonstop.
0: And and that's a function of comparing yourself to other parents because of
1: social right. media?
0: I think you call them momfluencers.
1: Yes. In fact, fortunately, I just read recently that there's a new brand of momfluencers, and they're not perfectly dressed up. They don't look you know, like perfection as they're espousing these false b- myths about parenting. And it's real-life mom influencers. one of whom has had over a million views, and she's in her messy house and in the same clothes she's been wearing, and she's just a regular mom.
2: I decided to get ready before my toddler woke up today, and wow, it was a complete game changer. I don't know why I haven't been doing this.
1: And that's the trend I hope we start to see more of, because... Over the last couple of years, it's all the perfect parent syndrome. And Craig,
0: you write about good enough (laughs) parents. Right. We've established there's no such thing
1: as perfect
0: parenting. What are good enough parents?
1: Let's take an example. So we know in the research that if you're inconsistent as a parent with your rules around the house, the children are going to have behavior issues. You have to structure the children. And I used to say, you know, If you can do that 80% of the time, so let's say your kid left their number 13 size, smelly tennis shoes out in the living room, and they're supposed to be in his room. 80% of the time, you march the young man out, get your shoes out of here. 20% of the time, you just do it yourself because you're so tired and you don't want to argue with your kid again. And if you've got a preschooler trying to pick up their toys, you know what I'm talking about. But with COVID, I kind of redefined it and said, just go for 60%. And if you've got preschoolers, teenagers, 51% is good enough.
3: Hmm.
1: What that's based on is that if your kid has an adequate environment, like a road, an adequate road to travel, on, and you're a good enough parent shepherding their car down the road, their genetic trajectory is going to take them where they're going to go. There is no research that you could do anything much more than that that would make a difference and your child would all of a sudden be admitted to Stanford or they'd have this fabulous career. It's all pretty much genetic. After you have a good enough environment and you can get through modern culture issues, they're they're going to turn out to be who they're going to be.
0: Wow, there's something comforting about that idea. And, uh, well... (laughs) It's so funny to me that we are calling for adequate, because there has been such a culture, and I think this is true of my childhood, of the child needing to excel. And maybe the parent feels that as well.
1: Yeah, yeah. And they're often pushing that on their kid. They need to do all these extra things, you know, get ready for testing, get your application all perfect so you can go to these different schools. And that was not there when I was a kid. We were given lots of independence. And then you learn to be independent. So one of the issues that I can concern about is the kids are so dependent on their parents through their cell phones. So anytime they have an issue come up, they immediately call mom or dad to to bail them out instead of really learning how to problem solve for themselves or with their peers versus just immediately reaching out to the parents.
0: Hmm. Welcome to my relationship with my mother even today. But okay, Craig. Yeah. <laughs> I don't feel I don't feel too called out here. Is now, it there
1: is one thing yeah. if I could just mention in the research they've only found one thing that you could pass on to your kids that would last them the rest of their life. The one thing they found is parental kindness. If parents are kind people, they're kind to the neighbors, they're kind to the grocery workers, they're kind to the people at the restaurant. That your kids will pick up on that and they too will become kind adults and will last for their lifetime.
0: Well, that makes me wonder how worried a parent should be when they fly off the handle at their kid.
1: <laughs> yes. Now, and that is so the first chapter in my book, it's okay to lose your blank sometimes, <laughs> that it's okay to yell at your kids sometimes because the modern f- mom influencers are talking about never yell at your child, you'll hurt your attachment. And all of these myths that are not true at all, for one, strong attachment comes out of having discord and then repairing discord. But the other issue is you have to think of your family's journey and your child's journey through life It's like this giant stained glass window. And it's full of all these parenting moments you're having with your kid. And a little piece of glass because you yelled at your child, sure, that doesn't feel good. But that one piece of glass is not going to change your child's trajectory.
0: I also think it's so powerful when a parent can say to a child, I was wrong. Yes. I I have harmed you. That in and of itself is oh. a good demonstration of behavior, right? Yes.
1: Yes. yes. It's mm-hmm. showing that none of us are perfect. I I love there's a psychoanalytic concept about the Swiss cheese ego. We're all Swiss cheese. We all have holes. None of us are cheddar. And you can say to your child, I stumbled into one of my holes, just like you kind of stumbled into one of yours. And when we stumble in our hole, we need to get out and apologize and try to fill the hole up and not go down the hole again.
0: So you've talked about a pandemic of fragility among kids. Yeah. Yeah. Will you explain what you mean by pandemic yeah. of fragility? And
1: basically, we know pre-COVID that so mental health rates in teens of depression and anxiety, it was always kind of hovered around 18% every decade. And then there was this big increase. Colorado has had some of the highest rates in teen anxiety and depression, and that was during sort of the 2010s. And most people were theorizing, well, that was social media and this hysteria about getting into the perfect college and all this academic stress on the kids. Mm -hmm. Well, then COVID comes, the rates go up even higher. Now, at some point, I'm hoping those rates will come down, but they're still pretty high. And all mental health practitioners are overwhelmed with with teens and they just seem to be so fragile. And I think it's the. long-term impact of COVID on them, just the stress of COVID, the plethora of time they spent on social media, and in my own opinion, the ongoing scourge of school shootings, of just mass shootings in our country. And last spring, a couple of second graders wanted to talk to me about that they heard there was a man coming to their school with a gun and he was going to shoot them all. And then they started asking me, what do they do if they're locked out of the room or if their teacher gets shot? That trickles down to little ones.
0: Second graders, did you say? Yes.
1: Yes. That particular one was at East High School. But then everything trickles down on the playground. And so maybe a sixth grader hears about it. Maybe they have a third grade sibling and they're talking to their parents. Now the third grader picks up little bits of it and they're sharing that on the playground, too.
0: Is it fair to call the
1: kids fragile? I don't when, consider the kids fragile. Uh-huh. I don't think it's their, it's not their fault. Yeah, it strikes me that. that. Yeah. yeah, I, I stri- thought about that when I used that phrase, but I do not believe they I see kids the same way I always have. I see some really resilient children teens thrive and overcome lots of adversity, being very resilient. But I think with the cultural issues we have with COVID, we we have made them fragile. It, mm. It's like they, they're not able to handle things and are just overwhelmed by it all.
0: Yeah, because it did occur to me that it, is it that the kids are fragile or is it that the environment they're in is so harsh in many ways it that no one, brutal. no one could help but be fragile in right. a society where shooting up a school is the norm.
4: Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah.
0: Well, okay. In the face of a culture of violence, of firearms, this is where I always struggle as a host, a journalist, when we have conversations about how to talk to your kids. It's not right to imbue them with a sense of false safety. What's the approach then?
1: So statistically, many gun deaths are Mm self-inflicted, right? And also that, and I always talk about this with the kids, but it gets harder every year, is that school statistically is the safest place you can be as a child. So far more children are injured at home or in the community than they are at school. Okay. So their schools have lots of adults. Now we all got fences and security cameras. There's eyes on the children all the time. Even at recess, there's playground eyes. There's people keeping an eye on you. So you want the kids to feel this sense of internal safety. But at the same time, we keep getting these attacks on children in schools. So you it's a mix, you have to inform them of some of this at an age-appropriate level, and then give them kind of, yes, these things are possible. The risk is very low, and this is what we're doing to keep you safe. But those fears are so big that teens are now wanting their parents to track their iPhones because they're afraid they'll be in a shooting somewhere. And they want their parents to know where they are, where to find them. Oh. Now, the teens, are, their brains are designed to move away from the parents and, and get your life going and go into adulthood. You don't want your parents tracking you, but now they're actually wanting it because they're afraid.
0: Well, you mentioned cell phones, and I, I'm desperate to ask you about them. If you had your druthers, is there an age at which you'd give a kid a cell phone?
1: Well, the age we did with our daughter, we were going to do sixth grade like all the other parents with a smartphone. After seeing what was going on with her classmates, we decided that she would have a flip phone. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: She was none too happy about it, and she got a smartphone when she started high school. And I really like, there's a support group nationwide called Wait Till 8th, and it's about you wait till eighth or ninth, ninth grade to give them a smartphone.
0: And what, what is it about eighth grade that feels magic to you about smartphones?
1: You're waiting for brain maturity. All children are different. Yeah. And some can handle things earlier than others. And so it's partly based on your individual child. Overall, middle school is that early phase of puberty. And the brain is incredibly vulnerable during that phase of development. It has twice the emotional output as it did when you are in elementary school. Uh, Very similar to a preschooler's emotional output. And it has half the self-control. Now, the other big piece that kicks up at puberty is what's called your nonverbal system. And that's the part of your brain that knows how to connect with friends, how to make friends, how to influence others, how to be part of the group. That all is just exploding in their brains. Hmm. And then when you throw social media into it, it could be, you know, bullying, group bullying against one student or people taking pictures of you, a film of your embarrassing Mm -hmm. moments and posting it online. Or it could be doing deep dives into TikTok and finding ways for Mm self-harm or promoting eating disorders. It, It just goes really deep.
0: So the idea is that we are syncing up Smartphone privileges with brain chemistry with brain yes. development uh-huh. with their brain development. <laughs> okay, what was the name of that? Wait till eighth. Wait
2: till
1: eighth. Wait till eighth. Yeah, it's in okay. Austin, Texas.
0: Let's switch to a somewhat more pleasant topic: the holidays. Oh yes. Yeah. The height for a lot of people, of course, of unrealistic expectations of stress. Maybe we could start in this realm. With gifts, Craig, how do parents not get themselves, to use your word, shamed, into giving kids everything?
1: Right. I sort of like the system my parents did. They had a set budgeted amount that each child was allowed to have. And there were five of us. So they always spent the same money, amount of money total. So if you got a bike, that might chew up most of your thing and you got your stock. Well, if you had three or four things that were less expensive, then you had those in your stocking. So it's really setting a reasonable limit on how much you're going to be getting them. And then you have to avoid, because you have to think about kids, they love novelty. The brain is wired for new things. And you take them to some event, you take them to the mall, and every kid, they're walking around looking at all those new toys and everything. And what's every kid thinking? I want that. I want, well, I want that one, and too. That, and yeah, that. I want yep. that one, too. And they will tap out your wallet in a heartbeat. So you might even have some set standards around, well, we'll see uh, how many gifts you, you'll be getting. And you can also do what I like is very few gifts from the Santa thing and more family gifts. You know, we draw names as a family, the cousins, and we all get each other a gift. Even the little ones participate. And there's only a few gifts when my children were younger that were from Santa, it was more about let's think about each other and our family huh. and caring for each other and taking care of each other as a family.
0: Wait, wait, wait. So ascribing gifts to the man with a beard, yeah, it means that there's a magic fount of money and goods. Yes. And it doesn't build the idea that that comes from something mom earned and thought about you specifically for.
1: Right. It's about the relationships in your family, not just the magic of the big guy who will just shower them with everything.
0: But you don't eliminate Santa gifts altogether.
1: No, we didn't with our kids. I know there are some parents who do.
0: Is there a way, okay, we, we began by talking about structure and that, with some kids, if you can be at 51% consistency and yes. structure, you know, you're, you're really right. winning. Is structure possible at the holidays?
1: I think it's possible, but but also necessary. And the number one would be the sleep, regular sleep schedules, as much as you can. Now, if you're taking them to the Nuggets game or the, the Nutcracker play that starts at seven, that's not going to happen. But If you can try to stick to the routine of a sleep schedule, sleep's very important for children. And anytime there's a big change in structure for children, they struggle behaviorally. So the last week of school before the two-week holiday break, it's chaos. They barely get anything done, and there's special parties and all this stuff, and there's no learning going on that week. But then when they come home, they have all these fantasies and things they want to do, of course, and and probably different foods than they usually eat. But if you can stick to some kind of thing around bedtime, and also the idea that you're not there to entertain them all the time Mm -hmm. when they're off, they have to self-entertain because mom and dad might be working online from home, or mom and dad have to do a lot of shopping and a lot of cooking. There needs to be okay, this is the schedule for today. This is the time you'll have to entertain yourself, then we'll be making the cookies, and then we'll be going to bed. Even though it's a different structure, you're trying to provide some guidelines for them.
0: Craig, I have to think that you give this some thought when you write your books, but I, I don't know. There's like a lot of parenting advice that makes me think, oh, is that coming from like a wealthy parent yeah, With a yeah. lot of time on their hands, who isn't facing economic or time hardships. My takeaway from most of what you've told us is that this is applicable at virtually every income level.
1: Oh, for sure. At every level. Now, the amount of time you have to do that or you, you might have to figure out way different ways of structuring your child or even child care for them if you don't have the money. And but. It applies to everyone. It really applies just to the basic needs of children.
0: Happy holidays, Craig. Thank you so much.
1: Thank you so much, Ryan. Always just enjoyable.
0: Craig Nippenberg of Denver has written Shame-Free Parenting, Building Resiliency in Times of Hardship, Guns, and Social Media. And Colorado Matters continues into the next half hour with an arc that's trying to save animals, but more than two by two. I'm Ryan Warner. You're with CPR News and KRCC.
4: Elementary, my dear, two times two is four. Elementary, my dear, two times three is six. Elementary, my dear, two times four is eight. Elementary, my dear, two times five is ten. Two times one is two, of course, and it must occur to you. You get an even number every time you multiply
5: by two. Elementary, my dear, two
1: times six is ten.
5: School board meetings and elections are often sleepy affairs, but not anymore in some Colorado school districts where political and religious influences on school boards have amplified.
4: Almost all of our efforts have been, how can we flip a school
5: board? I'm CPR education reporter Jenny Brundine, and I've examined how this development has affected school boards and districts, and how some parents are responding. Follow this and all of CPR's education reporting at CPR.org.
0: 3D-printed homes could ease this state's housing crunch. There's even talk of making Colorado an epicenter for their production. CPR's Dan Boyce has the story of two companies, a startup in Colorado Springs, and a national name moving its headquarters to Greeley. Microsoft started in a
6: garage, well, so are we, all
1: right? StructureBot
6: CEO and co-founder Jim Scott.
1: Although we're not doing software, we're building large-scale 3D construction printers.
6: And the more you talk to people in the 3D printed architecture world, the more you get the sense that, like the personal computer in the 70s and 80s, we may be on the cusp of true technological disruption. StructureBot's prototype takes up most of Scott's entire four car garage.
1: That back and forth motion is
6: what the printer does. A 16 by 16 foot gantry system supports the robotic movements of what looks like a silver cistern with a nozzle underneath. It starts at the bottom and then it goes up, 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 up. It's the programming which guides that nozzle and what comes out of it that could be the game changer. Those robotic nozzles lay down thin layers of couple-inch-wide specialized concrete, layer upon layer, building up what looks like a wall of Concrete corduroy.
1: I had followed this technology for some time.
6: Sherry Witt Brown is the CEO of Greeley Weld Habitat for Humanity.
1: For the first few years, it was a little bit more expensive, clumsy, you know, maybe not cost effective enough for affordable housing.
6: Making them incredibly inexpensive, that's what we're working on. Zachary Mannheimer founded Alquist 3D, the company that's moving to Greeley. At this point, the homes look basically like any other single family home, just with those corduroy textured exterior walls. Still, he understands people may need some convincing on the idea of living in a concrete house. We can do lots of patterns with this. The technology also allows you to do curved walls and other shapes. If anything, this is an advancement of what homes can look like. Mannheimer says Alquist had been looking at six states to move from their previous headquarters in Iowa. They began courting Greeley's Habitat for Humanity, and Sherry Whit brown flew out to see Alquist projects firsthand. She says when she saw the homes they built for a Habitat chapter in Virginia this June, she was convinced.
1: I've been in this business for over 37 years, and it's the first thing that's come along that I, I think it, it will revolutionize
2: the industry.
6: Here's Mannheimer in a Habitat video from the Virginia site. To print a home the size of the one we're about to do, it should take us anywhere between 17 and 20 hours to print the whole frame. Alquist3D says the well-insulated concrete walls cut energy bills in half versus lumber. The company is also working on concrete blends that would actually capture carbon as opposed to the high carbon emitting concrete typically used in construction today. And Wit Brown notes the homes could be particularly useful in Colorado.
2: With 3D printed homes, you're looking at something that is much more fire resistant.
6: Greeley Habitat will work with Alquist to build between 10 and 15 homes next year in a trial run. If that goes well,
2: we have the ability to scale this up very quickly.
6: She says perhaps 50 Alquist homes in 2025. Right now, Mannheimer says their homes cost about the same as traditional lumber homes. But as they scale up, he predicts the price of their finished product to drop by as much as 30%. That's where we want to get to. We're not there yet today, but within the next 24 months, we believe we will be. And the linchpin for Alquist's decision to relocate to Greeley, a direct partnership with local Ames Community College, The campus will have a program to train students on how to use Alquist printing robots and how to manufacture them. Greeley has all the pieces in a recipe for how it could actually grow organically. Back down in Colorado Springs, StructureBot is still in the opening stages of their business. But CEO Jim Scott has his own plans for the Pikes Peak region, a public benefit corporation focused on housing for the very bottom of the income ladder, like getting folks out of homelessness.
1: Providing this awesome technology to the residential builders around the country and around the world eventually.
6: Starting in his garage specifically. In Colorado Springs, Dan Boyce, CPR News.
0: Feast your eyes on pictures of the 3D printed houses at CPR.org. Speaking of pictures, Many animal species on the brink of extinction live in zoos and wildlife sanctuaries, and National Geographic has a project to photograph them, the Photo PhotoArc, as in NOAA. It's the brainchild of Joel Sartori, who was in Colorado this fall.
3: The Photo PhotoArc is my 30-year effort to photograph every species in captivity around the globe. We do mammals and birds and reptiles and amphibians and fish and invertebrates but the difference is we do them all on black and white backgrounds using studio lighting. And the reason we do that is to bring out the true color and to be able to see these animals and look them in the eye. There's no size comparison, no distractions. So the mouse is every bit as big and important as an elephant.
0: Or a hippo, which is one of the animals Sartori has come to the Denver Zoo to photograph this trip. Think of his work less as classic nature photography and more
3: like portraiture, as if a critter sat for a school photo especially the smaller animals, which you're never going to see in the wild. They live in muddy water or in the soil or high up in trees or under tree bark or leaves. So this is our chance to really get to know biodiversity, figure out what it looked like. And above all, be motivated to care about saving them, because when we save them, we're saving ourselves. The photo arc includes stills
0: and video. Sartori took his 15,000th photo just this week of the endangered Miami tiger beetle, The images are online and searchable. The search bar says, find your favorite animal. So I typed in giraffe, and sure enough, a portrait of a reticulated giraffe popped up, a species listed as vulnerable. The animal is indeed against a black backdrop, nothing to distract me from its chin whiskers and spots and its soft
3: gaze. And that eye contact is key, Sartori says. It's something we primates have hardwired into us. And I don't know why that is. But if you think about eyebrows, right? They raise up when we're surprised. They come down if we're feeling, you know, malicious or sinister, if we're in a bad mood. The whites of our eyes really show surprise or anxiety or fear. If, if you want to approach a mate you want to check somebody out if they, see if they like you are they looking back at you or are they averting eye contact you can also tell if somebody likes you or not by whether or not they look at you if you don't like somebody you won't look at them and other people pick up on that so we are total creatures of eye contact so in terms of in terms of what I do eye contacts everything and I tell you it's really hard to get people to care about sponges and anemones and corals because they don't have eyes Mussels freshwater mussels are these aquatic water monitors. They're telling us our water is so dirty They can't live in it anymore a lot of them. They're in trouble and yet We can't get that across the public because they look like rocks. They're not rocks They're really critical to our own survival But eye contact is everything so the photo arc is all about eye contact every bit of it every bit that we can make about eye contact we do
0: What is the strangest sound you've made to get an animal's attention to make eye contact with you?
3: Most zoo animals have heard everything. They've heard people clapping and yelling and jostling keys and whistling. The only thing I've found that works once in a while is to squeal like a pig, and it works once. Like that. It works one time. I got an arctic fox to look at me with his head tilted like your dog when it hears a weird noise by doing that one time, because most of these animals have heard it all, but they haven't heard that. This is
0: existential for you, and it's existential for many of the critters that you photograph. A lot is on the line here.
3: This is a project I had thought about doing a lot since I did a story on the Endangered Species Act for Geographic in the 90s. And I noticed that most of the listed species, plants and animals, were never recorded well, never documented well, certainly not in a way where you could find them. There was no online when I, when I started working for Geographic. There was no web. But the truth was, a lot of these species could go away, especially amphibians, which are in such trouble because they take in toxins through their skin and they need a steady, moist environment and they can't take heat, a lot of them. You know, they were gonna go away and nobody would even know they existed. There was no documentation of them. And freshwater fish, the fish of the Colorado River Basin, you'd see some pictures of animals laying next to a ruler, dead. So when my wife got breast cancer about 18 years ago, and I was home for a year, and I'd done 30 stories over 17 years for Geographic at that point, only two had really made any difference. And when I was home, she and I both talked about it and thought, well, if she gets better, I'm gonna start doing something different. I I wanna do portraits of these small animals because it's gonna be the only record that exists of a lot of them. Snails, toads, sparrows, nobody cares about them, but I do. So she did get better and she's fine to this day. And I started doing this business of taking pictures on black and white backgrounds. I called it the Biodiversity Project at first. And I realized that was too complicated when I could not remember the name of the project (laughs) on live TV. So I changed it to the photo arc because everybody understands what an arc is.
0: And you are capturing animals that are in captivity.
3: Yes. And that, that, that's because zoos and wildlife rescues, that's where the species are. A lot of times, yeah, they are the arc now. A lot of zoos, they have these populations of animals. They're the only ones that have them. But also, it's very hard to convince a tiger in India to come out of the woods and lay on your backgrounds and have me light him up. You know, you have to do animals that don't really have a choice, but to be shifted into a space. So the way that it works is I will contact the zoo ahead of time, say, would you be interested in having me? Unfortunately, the Denver Zoo has always been interested in having me, it's been great. Been coming here for 20 years, on and off. And I say, can you send me your latest inventory? And they do, and I say, okay, I need these 15. And they'll say, well, we can do these 10 because five wouldn't handle the lights well, or whatever. And then we make a plan. Like we made a plan today for Hippo, They prepped a space in black, hippo shifted in, he ate some apples, he ate some oranges, he pooped all over everything, then they let him out. 15 minute process, no problem. This required
0: painting a background because you need a space large enough that it is rendered black for the hippo.
3: That is correct, so it's work on behalf of the zoo, but the zoo gets copies of everything. Uh, The zoo thinks it's beneficial and I think it's beneficial just to have a good record of these animals and so we're gonna do a Usambera pit viper in a little tabletop shooting tent that has a white liner in it. And we're going to do a couple of fish, marine fish, ocean fish, in a little tabletop tank. But the hippo was the show today. And they had prepped and practiced with that animal coming in there for two weeks. So when I come along, the animal just thinks he's coming in to get a treat. And he is. He ate. And then he goes outside and eats some more.
0: Did you make any sounds for the hippo?
3: I did not have to make a single sound. I tried to stay low and quiet and not move and not frighten him, and he was real good.
0: How many more animals are there still to photograph, do you think?
3: Well, we used to think, you know, at the world's accredited zoos and aquariums, there were maybe 12,000 species, but the number of aquariums has grown around the world, so the number might be closer to 25, and we're at about 15,000 now. So hopefully I'll have enough time left in my life to get it done, we have to go farther to get fewer now. I also worked at a couple of wildlife rehab centers while I was out here. But in terms of where I am in the project, a little bit more than half done.
0: Have any of the species you've photographed gone extinct since you've captured them?
3: Yes. Several amphibians and a rabbit that lived in eastern Washington state was driven to extinction. And others are right on the cusp. Like the northern white rhino is now down to two females, a mother and daughter, in a pen in Kenya. That's it. So we see extinction you know, every few months. We see it looming. People just don't understand the consequences either. It is epic when you lose a species, epic in a bad way, because we don't understand how it fits in the role of everything else. But I, I do know that if we drive enough to extinction, it's a bit like having the rivets come out of an airplane wing slowly when you're mid-flight over the Atlantic Ocean. How many, how many rivets are you comfortable with losing? I'm not comfortable with losing any. So that's why I do this, is to get people to wake up and care and be moved to do something. You know, and there's things people can do right here in Denver, like plant a pollinator garden. Quit pouring poison on your lawn to kill bugs and fungus and weeds. Just make your lawn natural and native. The delight that you get, especially children, in seeing butterflies and native bees come into your backyard or your front yard, it's fantastic. If you want to save monarchs, plant milkweed. There's it, it, things we can do all the time.
0: I drove a combustion engine car to be with you and to talk about species disappearing and climate change.
3: Right. We're all sinners, right? Yeah. So I drove a hybrid, at least. But the sooner we can get into, uh, move away from burning petroleum to move around when we can use renewable energy electrically, uh, that's going to be a great day.
0: Thank you so much for talking with me. Good luck in the remaining photo shoots.
3: Thank you so much. Appreciate it.
0: National Geographic photographer Joel Sartori speaking with me at the Denver Zoo in September as he added to his ever-growing photo arc, which you can explore online. We have a link at cpr.org slash Matters. When we come back, pointers for your poinsettias. This is CPR News.
2: Colorado Wonders set out to answer some questions about the western slope. Or is it the west slope? And where exactly is it? Lots of listeners shared their thoughts about Western Colorado's boundaries and the right way to refer to it. It's the best slope. Listen to what we found on Colorado Wonders at CPR.org.
0: Made possible in part by the Colorado Health Foundation. You may have a poinsettia or two decorating your home or office this season. And yes, we discovered the correct pronunciation is poinsettia, where I say that I at the end. Anyhow, one of our producers, Michelle Fulcher, buys these plants every year, but their relationship has been complicated. She spoke with horticulturist Nick Giaquinto of the Denver Botanic Gardens in December 2019.
2: So let me start with this. We have a beautiful poinsettia sitting right here in the studio red leaves, white leaves, I'm going to describe them as perky, right? They're kind of standing up, beautiful plant. If this were in my house, I'd just be hoping
5: that it would last till Christmas. Am I the lone ranger here, or poinsettia is hard to take care of? They can be a challenge to take care of, because most people, they love to overwater plants. is like to dry out between waterings, and unfortunately everybody feels the need to really love their plants. Sort of killing
2: them with kindness. Yes, they love
5: them so much that they want to drown them. So they water (laughs) them almost every day, every other day. Poinsettias, depending on where you place them, in sunnier places, they might need to be watered a bit more frequently. In a darker place, a little bit less so. Usually you can tell where how to water them by checking the soil. So if the soil feels dry, that's a good indicator that you should water your plant now.
2: So not even moist, but dry.
5: Dry, yeah. So if you look at your plant, your plant will tell you what it wants. If it starts to wilt, that's not a sign that it's dying. That's a sign that it just needs water. So you just got to look at those hints. And if you follow those hints, you will make it last longer than the first week when you buy it. So I have to be sort of a plant psychologist along with everything else? I, I wouldn't say psychologist. I usually use detective to figure out those very not-so-subtle hints that they're giving you. Give me another couple
2: of hints of things that people do wrong.
5: Overwatering is usually the biggest criminal thing. The other thing is when they place them in someplace really dark and then expect them to last longer, plants obviously need natural light to survive, and inside is already much darker than outside. Okay. Um, So putting it in the darkest corner in your room with no lights or not not even a window, it's ensuring that your plant is not going to live for a long time.
2: So I have kind of the opposite problem. I have big old windows all through my house. And every time I buy one of these plants, somebody says, indirect light. I'm like, first of all, what is that? And second, like, do I move the plant around during the day to catch the indirect light?
5: No. So (laughs) (laughs) um, usually it just means to keep it away from the window if it's a south-facing window, Okay. Um, South-facing windows are the brightest area. So usually take it away from the window. It'll still be in a very bright room in direct light. How did
2: this become a holiday plant anyway?
5: So they're well-known because of their bright red bracts or white bracts, pink bracts. And bracts are leaves. Yes. It's just been a staple from our greenhouse industry. They're very easy to grow and cultivate. And it's also just because it's a a pretty cheap plant for greenhouses to grow.
2: So the poinsettia is native to Mexico. It was cultivated by the Aztecs. Uh, When the missionaries came later, they called it, I love this, el flor de noche buena. That means the... Flower of Christmas Eve. How did it come to the U.S.?
5: The poinsettia is actually named after a U.S. ambassador to Mexico, Poinsett. Basically, during the early to mid-1800s, there's a lot of plant collecting going on at the time. So mm. people loved to have all these rare exotic plants. And then over time, it just became a staple for those lovely red or white bracts that they can grow for the holiday season.
2: What do you think of is? You're a horticulturist. I ask that question
5: every day too, actually. I'm not a huge fan of poinsettias. I wish that we used more anthuriums, which is another amazing aeroid family plant that is usually used actually in Europe more for their cut flowers during the holiday season.
2: And what do anthuriums, do they have like a popular name? I a
5: flamingo flower would cool. probably be the most common name. It's a staple house plant here in the United States as well. Continually blooms red flowers. Oh, nice. um, it's just a great plant and much sturdier than a poinsettia. The problem with things like anthuriums is that they're much more expensive. Okay, so
2: there's a myth that goes with poinsettias. Poinsettias. There you go. There you go. That they're poisonous, right?
5: No. So they're related to, they they are euphorbia, and there are a lot of euphorbias, and some of them are toxic, but poinsettia is not toxic. Same thing with, like, the concern of feeding your dog or cat. Right. It's not going to be the end of the world if they accidentally bit a leaf or two off of it.
0: Nick Giaquinto horticulturist at the Denver Botanic Gardens, speaking in December 2019 with Colorado Matters senior producer Michelle P. Fulcher. And we're happy to say Michelle's poinsettias are still alive and well years later. Also, this Saturday and Monday, horticulture students at Colorado State University host their annual poinsettia sale. They'll have nearly 2,000 plants available of 17 different varieties. Proceeds go back to the horticulture program.
4: Percy, the puny poinsettia, hanging his bloom in dismay. If they had just kept him wetter, he'd be a house plant today.
0: Two million pounds of ice, a holiday market and high-flying acrobatics make up a holiday spectacle in Aurora. CPR's Eden Lane takes us to Christmas at Gaylord
4: Rockies. The halls are decked at the massive resort and convention complex. Local musicians and singers fill the air with holiday music, and hand-carved ice sculptures surround visitors with a frozen retelling of a Christmas story. A team of 40 world-class ice artists from Harbin, China, created the scenes from the family holiday classic. Zengang Yu had a background as a painter before trading in his brushes for chisels.
6: Uh
0: Because
4: the ice sculpture is certainly a form of art, he thinks. He hopes that people in Denver can Admire or share their happiness during, you know, carving and sculpting and building. It took the carvers approximately six weeks to create the nearly 17,000 square foot frozen attraction. Now that it's open, Mr. Yu has been on hand for the amazed reactions of viewers, especially children, enjoying the slides. Um, he feels, like really
1: good.
4: Especially he loves to see children like slide down the (laughs) slides and, you know, like they're having fun. That warms his heart. The holiday celebration continues with Cirque Spirit of Christmas, a custom production which includes high-flying stunts, acrobatics, and a dramatic musical score. Broadway director Neil Goldberg helms this original Gaylord Hotels show. It delivers all of the spectacle that one would want to see from a show that has the word Cirque in it. But where this show is elevated and separated from the rest is that there's a wonderful, beautiful story that revolves around Christmas. The story of a young child, Noel, who goes on this journey to find all the things about Christmas that she loves. Goldberg says the inspiration for much of what he does comes from children. And I was that child that was not afforded many of the opportunities that exist today for children in terms of expressing themselves creatively and artistically. And so I like to dream and I like to be able to deliver the message that anything is possible and dreams come true. The holiday events at Gaylord Rockies extend to every corner of the massive property and also include Mistletoe Village, where Mrs. Claus reads Christmas stories and leads a holiday sing-along, or learn the secrets of becoming one of Santa's helpers from his top toy maker and create a keepsake gift. Even join in the reindeer game's scavenger hunt with Rudolph and the misfit toys and find some special gifts and decorations for sale. Jordan Danuski, director of special events and entertainment, says Gaylord Rockies has special hopes for the holidays. But this is more personal than his job. It goes back to early family memories of holiday celebrations at the Gaylord Outpost in Texas.
0: But back
6: then, it was super impressive what was happening. And I, it just caught my imagination in that perfect way. I never forgot it. And every time I could get my family back together in some form, we would go. And then it would be steering the ship, so to speak, it is incredibly... Uh, special to me and uh, just makes me excited for what's to come. I know Christmas means things for different people, but where I come from in the South, we love Christmas and so to just build that tradition and to build opportunities for people to get together and again escape a little bit and just see something that's over the top, I, I, I take it to heart and I love
0: what I do.
4: Christmas at Gaylord Rockies runs through January 1st, 2024, and requires tickets for the various attractions and events.
0: I'm Eden Lane, CPR News. Eden rounds up everything from nutcracker performances and tree lightings to holiday markets at CPR.org. Finally today, we invite you to take part in a current Colorado tradition that's based on a vintage TV show. At the holidays, I delight in a rather campy Judy Garland special. It features her daughter, Liza Minnelli, and her one-time collaborator, Mel Torme.
1: Love and joy come to you, and to all your loved ones too. And God bless you and send you a happy new year. And God says you are Happy New
0: Year. Now, well, eight years ago, we created the Colorado Matters Holiday Extravaganza, a nod to this 1963 special. It's our biggest show of the year with music and comedy and memories, and you're invited to the recording the evening of December 7th at Denver Central Presbyterian Church. Limited tickets remain at cpr.org holiday. It's a chance to see radio in the making, to be in the company of other public radio fans, and to shake off any seasonal blues. Again, claim your seats at cpr.org slash holiday. They're some of the most affordable tickets in town to boot. And that's Colorado Matters for today from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner.